Hey, Retrospectors, for our third birthday, we've filmed an hour-long Q&A answering your questions. We discuss our favourite facts, how we make the show, and what we've learned along the way. If you're already supporting us on Patreon, thank you. You can watch it right now at patreon.com slash retrospectors. And if you're not a Patreon member, sign up. You don't have to pay a thing to become a free member and watch it now. So check it out. It's free. Patreon.com slash retrospectors. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's December 1st, 1997, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali. The Retrospectors. You'd be forgiven for thinking that intense concern for the safety of one's garden gnomes is a trait restricted to grumpy next-door neighbours in children's comics. But you would be wrong, for it was today in history in 1997 that a seemingly unremarkable terracotta garden gnome called Lampy was insured for the princely sum of £1 million. Yeah, seemingly unremarkable, but in fact deeply special, because as far as we know, this is the world's oldest, still extant garden gnome. The only survivor of a set of 21 gnomes imported into Britain in the 1840s. Yeah, and the reason there was only one survivor of this set of 21 gnomes is because the daughters of the guy who bought them after he passed away thought they were so hideous that they smashed them all up. And this one was the one survivor because it was concealed in a crevice and found after the Second World War. And then people were like, wait a second, what is this thing? And only uh, then did it become clear that this was like a really important moment in gnome history. If there is such a thing. <laughs> he, please, let's give him his gender. Yes. Lampy is a boy, no. <laughs> Not an it. Yeah, so uh, Lampy's, I don't know, human dad, Sir Charles Isham. He, out of respect to the gnome's origins, we'll get into this, but the kind of legend is that they are earth-dwelling creatures. You know, they live underground. He used them to decorate his rockery. He had a huge rockery in his home, which was Lamport Hall in Northampton. And so that was the reason Lampy was able to survive. He was tucked into the crevice of the rocks, whereas most of the others were placed in various entertaining tableaus. You know, they had their little picks, their little shovels. There was even one that depicted minor gnomes who'd gone on strike. They had a little banner that said, eight hours sleep, eight hours play, eight hours work eight shillings pay now they were german the gnomes uh, <laughs> the not gnomes, um yes. the ishams and uh, isham had been to germany to nuremberg in fact and brought them back home with him as a souvenir because as you suggested he was interested in the mystical element of these creatures but also because they were a genuine trend in germany at the time garden dwarfs were becoming increasingly popular and he as a Brit had never seen the like of it before and basically thought it would be funny. I mean, this is the thing. It's not as if gnomes are only funny now that they're kitsch and camp and silly and how did people take them seriously. He sort of took them seriously. He always knew they were funny. Mm. Like, they're funny little things. 
yeah, on one hand, he obviously had a sense of humour about it. You know, he created these amusing little scenes with them. But also, he very much did believe that they were real. I mean, he was... Uh, one of the reasons that they didn't quite catch on in the UK for a while was because Isham wasn't necessarily the best guy to introduce them. You know, he was a socialist, vegetarian, teetotaler who believed in all manner of supernatural creatures. And he wrote... Although the nature of gnomes is at present very obscure, it, like all other occult phenomena, is receiving attention throughout the world. Seeing such things is no longer an indication of mental delusion, but rather extension of faculty. <laughs> a little bit hopeful. Yeah, it's funny. Like, pretty much throughout the history of keeping small gnome-like things in gardens and sort of even the mythos of gnomes themselves, it's hard to detach reality from fantasy because, you know, you go right back to the Roman era and garden ornaments often included small stone statues of Priapus, who is a Greco-Roman god associated with fertility, the protection of beehives, flocks and vineyards. You can see why you'd put one of those in the garden. But then the, the sort of idea of gnomes themselves is often attributed to a chap called Paracelsus, who was a Swiss alchemist in the Renaissance era. And he had a 16th century book called A Book on Nymphs, Sylphs, Pygmies and Salamanders and on Other Spirits. And basically in it, he identified gnomes as being the creature that comes from the earth and then various other creatures that came from the other elements, water, air and fire. And he sort of like partially based these ideas on his own ideas about chemistry at the time. But he was also bringing in lots of folkloric traditions and trying to weave those together and it's very unclear kind of where his ideas about whether they were real creatures end and where the sort of the fantastical ideas begin yes but i mean <laughs> well, we might just have to disagree about whether or not um isham had a sense of humor about it i mean <laughs> it is true that he sort of wrote doggerel poetry about the gnomes for the local summer fate and that he even moved his bedroom to the first floor overlooking the rockery perhaps so that he could glimpse his men at work at night <laughs> um, and he was certainly an eccentric. But at the other hand, they just seem so resonant to me of a sort of English upper-class humour. They sort of undercut the refined nature of a sculptured garden. You know, it's exactly this kind of bloke. He was knighted, he'd been to rugby and brazenose. You know, he, he owns a massive house that would think it was just amusing to have 20 little creatures in his garden. <laughs> I feel like, yes, they were German, but they really hit their stride when they came to England. Yeah, I mean, it took a little while for them to catch on and it took a more conventional figure to bring them to the masses. This was Sir Frank Crisp, who was a high-flying solicitor. He installed gnomes in the grounds of his home, which is Friar Park in Henley-on-Thames at the turn of the century. And he uh, there was public admittance to the grounds. So people saw them and they started to buy them themselves. So they went from being something that, you know, was a niche interest for a few uh, upper-class eccentrics to being something that you might see in a middle-class garden. The reaction to this was swift from the uh, tastemakers. By 1913, the first ever Chelsea Flower Show had outlawed gnomes from display. They were already considered tacky by this point. But after World War II, when mass-produced gnomes took suburban British gardens by storm and even reached the USA, this was very much the end of gnomes as anything but something kitsch and very tacky. 
It's funny, though, because you had that early sort of period, well, that around the very early 1910s, where they were briefly fashionable, particularly with the higher classes. You know, you had uh, them featured at the Royal International Horticultural Exhibition, and then it was kind of a reaction. Like, Chelsea Flower Show began uh, soon after that exhibition, and it almost wanted to differentiate itself by saying, you know, we have better ideas about what is tasteful and what is not. And so that was why they came up with their band in the first place. And also the reason why they fell out of favour during the two world wars was pretty much because people were still associating them with Germany and thinking, Mm. you know, we don't like German things just now, so we're not going to have them in our gardens. But also because of the war, most of the major ceramic manufacturers in Germany were unable to produce for a number of years. And then even when they got back on their feet, as you suggest, the supply chain had kind of vanished. And so then what happened is plastic gnomes, it's not just that they're German, it's that they're not German. You know, the people who actually wanted the gnomes couldn't get the old-fashioned ones. You'd get these mass-produced plastic ones. And that all coincided as well with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which we've talked about before, this massive phenomenon in 1937. The modern post-World War II plastic gnome is basically a Disney dwarf, isn't it? Mm. And I think that's why, over the decades, they began to be seen as very de classe. And by the 1970s, reportedly, estate agents were advising home sellers to hide their gnomes during viewings. (laughs) Well, simultaneously, there was another burst of popularity in the 70s due to a book by Will Huygen that was called Gnomes. And it had these really lovely illustrations by Rian Portfleet. And they sort of became a, a minor sensation, at least in the US, selling more than a million copies. And they were really sort of these kind of heartwarming pictures of uh, gnomes rubbing noses and helping injured animals and building lovely little underground huts and so on. And I think that kind of boosted the mythology that had sort of fallen away. This was also the time period that we saw the emergence of gnoming or the travelling gnome. People taking gnomes around the world, sending little cute photos and postcards from various landmarks. But the original one was Henry Sunderland photographing his own garden gnomes, which were named Harry and Charlie, while he was travelling around Antarctica. This then turned into a prank. The first known example happened in Australia in 1986. Uh, The Sydney Morning Herald reported that uh, a woman in the eastern suburbs was distressed when she discovered her gnome had been stolen at the weekend. A note was found in its place. Dear mum, couldn't stand the solitude any longer. Gone off to see the world. Don't be worried. I'll be back soon. Love, Bilbo. I mean, I think gnoming is funny, but it's interesting, isn't it, that it reached its apex, I mean, literally... The very first time. I mean, how extraordinary to bring a gnome to the South Pole. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Carrying on a heavy ornament with you as you traverse Antarctica. Yeah. And then any any gnoming since then is just a pale imitation of the first one. Yeah, unless Elon Musk puts one in a Tesla and blasts it out <laughs> into space. It's not going to be topped. <laughs> but then the 80s has this sort of downhill uh, moment for <laughs> gnomes again when you had this really sort of irreverent moment where you had topless female gnomes and farting gnomes and then it was all like... Yeah, the gnome's doing a wee up against a tree. All yeah, exactly, and vomiting yeah. rainbows I've got a barbecuing gnome, I must say, which I'm fond of, but I think when genitalia are involved, I'm not interested. <laughs> <laughs> and so another week of retrospecting ends. But next week begins a day early at Club Retrospectors. Join us now to get an exclusive episode every Sunday. Patreon.com slash retrospectors.